Again, well, I mean, even with us starting as we are now, I still want to go through, I mean, we'll talk about the Book of Acts breaking down into sections and what that kind of looks like. Now, those of you who got the information from last week, I want to remind you, it's a, it's a pivotal book in a lot of ways, of course, because it goes from the physical Jesus uh, uh, walking before us so we can touch and feel and smell and hear in the Gospels to Jesus really being less tangible, but living in the constant expectation that he can show up at any given moment. And that's really the book of Acts. If you think about it, it's very similar to the Torah in Joshua, where the people are crossing into the, from the promised, I'm sorry, from Egypt, and they have these miraculous situations that constantly keep them alive. Uh, you know, the water from the rock, the bread from heaven, quail that kind of blow in with the east wind. And yet in all of that, there comes a point, and, but, but even more than that, there's a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. God is constantly in a very tangible way they can see him. But once they cross into the promised land, that pillar is going to be gone. And the manna is going to be gone. And the water from a rock is going to be gone. All of these sort of things that we hated because if God did impulse through at that moment, we were going to die we would grow to miss in some ways when it comes down to everything is just set and orderly and you have your place. And I can tell you that from being a church planner where we've been in those places. We're in that place again where we're kind of in the wilderness where it's like God has to provide me and to provide now or, you know, but he always does. Of course he always does. But then you get to that place where you're comfortable. You're not setting up every Sunday morning or tearing down and carrying stuff from one place to another, wondering how you're going to get things going. And, you know, as trying as that can be, you will miss it. You will miss it when everything is organized and it's put in its place and the speakers are, are bolted to the walls and the sound man has his own cage and basically at that point it's just who's going to sit back and run it. And in the book of Acts, it's a very pivotal book because it is going to pivot us from just constantly staring at Jesus, more than likely most of the back of his head, to knowing he said he would be there and he would, that he would be with us even to the end of the age, he would never forsake you, he would never leave us. Literally, the idea is that we would never spend a waking moment, never spend a breath where he's not there. And we go from that to not seeing him, but trusting now that that's the case. And now we have to get to that, Jesus, I know you're here, even though I can't see you or hear you like that. And that's a pretty radical place. Now, the book in the Greek is called Plexus Apostolos. Apostolos, we get the word that means apostles. Praxis, we get the word practices from. It means in essence, the practices or the, or the actions of the apostles. And thus we get the term act. Uh, it pivots us in, in very fundamental ways, and it's important to note these things. It is, again, a historical book. In other words, unless Jesus is teaching us doctrine, just because someone doesn't, does it, doesn't mean that's the way we're supposed to do it. But we can see when it's done a certain way that there is sort of a cause and effect. So when we sort of go, well, look at how they did this. This seemed to bear very good fruit. Well, that's definitely leaves something to put on the table to emulate. I mean, let's face it. There are other times Jesus hung himself, then he fell headlong, and his entrails gushed out. I don't think we look at that and think, well, I wouldn't be great if we all hung ourselves. But it's in the text that he did. And the reason I say that is just because it's recorded doesn't mean God endorses it. But sometimes those things are recorded as our warning. So we get to the book of Acts. Uh, now as we look at it, I remind you, it is in essence the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes 
of course, the, the book of Luke. And of course, he writes here, and he'll tell us that. In the former account, I said, Ophiophilus, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until that time that he was taken up from us. And that's an important place to go. Notice, Luke says, he writes to the same audience, Theophilus, same guy as he did for Acts. And he says, hey, remember what I wrote before? And I wrote about the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Which leads me to believe, then, that the book of Acts is the things that Jesus continued to do and teach in a very different way. He taught in front of us in the book of Luke, and now he's teaching through us in the book of Acts. Very fun to think about. So I want to pray, and we're going to dig into it. Now, the goal again is, well, here, when the breakdown comes, we'll see that. So, Lord, I do pray that you would keep this clear and concise. There's so many places that we could go, but we're not going to, Lord, unless you want us to. But what we really want is we want to learn. And we want to be able to see this book clearly and in an overview that helps us understand. So, Lord, please let this be such a sweet night where we just get to be together and be with you and learn from you. Please, Lord. So I commit this to you and pray, Lord, that this would be your night and that we would get it, get it more clearly than we ever have. In Jesus' name. Amen. Like always, please don't just believe. Don't just assume the truth of this. Please the scriptures. Chapter 1. Well, our epilogue, of course, Luke tells us who he's writing to Theophilus. He tells us that it is a sequel to his own uh, gospel. The, it's easy to forget some of the things that... It's easy to forget that the, that the disciples didn't know the things we know as we read through the book. They have no idea that Jesus is about to ascend. Have you ever thought that through? I mean, think of all the things Jesus promised. He promised his death, his betrayal, his being handed over to the Gentiles, his being tortured, his, his scourging, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, even to the day, the third day that he would raise. He told us all of those things, but he never told us he would ascend. So imagine how strange that would be. I mean, because we know, you know, it's kind of like watching one of those movies with Sean Pei, where she'd be like, oh, this is the part where this is going to happen, because you're so excited about it. And my mind does that. And then I realize that they didn't know that. So when Jesus leads them up to the Mount of Olives, it's the Sabbath day journey away. From the Mount of Olives, that's where Jesus descended on Palm Sunday, what we'll celebrate this Sunday. Since we've just finished Matthew, we can actually have the luxury of those sort of specifics. It is the place where he taught the end time sermon. And it is the place now where Jesus is going to ascend. It is also that Mount of Olives, I remember, is not a single mountain, but it is a range which contains also things like Bethphage and Bethany, which is the house of Lazarus, for what it's worth. I mean, that's where he would spend the night every night when Jesus was at a feast. He never, we have nowhere in Scripture that he ever spent the night in Jerusalem. But people are trying to kill you why you want to spend the night in Jerusalem versus spend the night at a home of a friend that you raised from the dead. It just was a better place to be. So, that Sabbath day journey, Jesus is always there. So this is a really, really familiar place. Also, on the Mount of Olives is Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed. It told us in the Gospel of John that Jesus would often go there with his disciples to pray. The place where Judas led the uh, guards to arrest Jesus, he knew where to go because it was a place Jesus repeatedly went to with them and one of, one of the reasons, perhaps, is just to make it easy for, for uh, Judas to find him. I mean, he was going to make it easy on Judas. 
and so, I mean, this is this of all the places in and around Judea, this would be the one place we'd probably be the most familiar with. It's kind of a weird or interesting thought. And Jesus takes us up there, and as we go up there now, Jesus is resurrected, and he has already taught us what Luke tells us is that for and can, just keep this number in your head for mass for later. For 40 days, he presented himself alive to many fallible truths. It doesn't say how many times. It doesn't say how long when he did present himself, but he did teach him about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, for 40 days from his resurrection, which is again the beginning of Passover, it's the Passover, that for those 40 days, Jesus would keep just showing up and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And that was the emphasis, that was his theme during that time. Then he takes them back down to Jerusalem, because this has been in Galilee. He takes them down to Jerusalem, and then they go up on the Mount of Olives. And at that point, the disciples say, this is the time, right? This is when you're going to set up the kingdom. Now, I remind you, Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God over the last 40 days. Because when we read Acts 1.8, we kind of forget the context a bit, which is that Jesus had been teaching them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. That's what's been pumped into our minds, Jesus goes up onto a mountain. We are the last time that we kind of thought about Jesus standing on this mountain facing Jerusalem like that, other than his arrest, was when Jesus descended for for Palm Sunday, for the triumphal entry, when we thought he was going to set up the kingdom then. Now he kind of comes and revisits that moment, and it would be easy for us to go, oh, this is the moment. This is when you're going to do it. And Jesus says, the times and the seasons in which the Father is set under his own authority, they're not for you to know. In other words, he goes, you know, even though I've been teaching you all that, you're missing the point. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, hear that again, because this is the statement that a lot of people who love to focus on the book of Acts miss because it's the fundamental structure for the entire book. You will become witnesses. You need to recognize that. Martyria, the word we get martyr from. But it literally means evidence. And Marcia can probably be a good person. Forgive me for sort of bringing you the light on that. As a solicitor, when you're presenting evidence, you present it in different ways. There's certain kinds of evidence, like clean the face evidence. Its existence can kind of shut something down. For instance, if, they, if, if Hugo was on trial for killing Daniel and someone lost a living Daniel and he's pre face to evidence, clearly Hugo didn't kill Daniel because Daniel's alive. That would be that kind of evidence. Some of the evidence is obviously inanimate. It's a bloody knife or it's a whatever. It's obviously something. It's certain video or, or pictures that obviously display something. But then amidst the evidence pool is also witnesses. They're part of your evidence pool. Now remember, a witness is somebody who has experienced something that is pertinent to the case. And it isn't the witness's job to sway, as much as you can think this, it's not the witness's job to convince a uh, jury. It is, in essence, the solicitor's job to convince the jury. And because of that, they have at their disposal the witnesses and other inanimate evidence that is necessary to use when they think is necessary, the way they think is necessary to sway the jury. Does that make sense? Now, don't miss that. 
Because Jesus did not say, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will become the, the legislator, or you will become the litigator, you will become the, the barrister or the solicitor. You'll be evidence. And the cool part about that is, is that because you're evidence, you are in the pool or the docket of that evidence to the, uh, to the solicitor. And it's interesting because Jesus is actually given that title in 1 John. When it says, I write this, so this is chapter 2, verse 1, I write this so you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He's a defense attorney. Jesus Christ the righteous, who was the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And I love the idea that, now here's the cool part about that. If you recognize that you are evident and not the solicitor, all you need to do is be available. And it's the solicitor's job to put you on the stand when he wants you or she wants you on the stand, in this case Jesus or she wants you on the stand, and all you need to do is say the things that he asks you to say. What were you at? What were you seeing? What was the time? The questions. And again, your job's not this way. You will be used in that, but you're used by the solicitor. And the great part about it is it's not your responsibility. Here's the great part. All you need to be is honest. How cool is that? And you can take the responsibility off of you. And the Lord will call you to stand. I love that. But i got to be honest. This is the hardest verse in the New Testament form. Because of this. And by the way, this tea is pretty dang good. Note this off for next time. Maybe a little less sweet, but pretty dang good. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit does come upon people. And the world has changed. The Holy Spirit comes upon a judge and all of Israel has changed. And be that Gideon, or Samson, or Jephthah. Be that Othniel, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a guy, the world is changed. One guy. When the Holy Spirit comes upon Moses, the world is changed. When the Holy Spirit comes upon Joshua, the world is changed. So imagine if that was my experience and my understanding of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. And then I thought the Holy Spirit was going to come upon two people. What I would think. I thought one, the Holy Spirit coming upon one person revolutionizes the entire area, not the world. What would happen if the Holy Spirit came upon two people? What if the Holy Spirit came upon three people? Wow, how that world would change. How many people do you think the Holy Spirit could be upon that are his right now in the world? If one could change the world, why isn't the world being changed when so many people are asking for the Holy Spirit to come upon us? Maybe because they don't realize what it is Jesus said they would become if he did. He said they'd be witnesses. Didn't say they'd speak in tongues here. And by the way, for what it's worth, I challenge you, six times in the book, you'll see the Holy Spirit come upon people. Of the six times, three of those times, they'll speak in tongues. But in all six of those times, they will be bold. Because it's what he promised. And if we wanted the Holy Spirit to come upon us so we could receive power, the word he said, dunamis, literally the ability to overcome resistance. Might I say it dangerously, the ability to get over yourself. And maybe we really would see, maybe less people would actually ask, maybe less people would ask for the power of the Holy Spirit 
because they recognized they were asking to be recruited for ministry to change the world. But to that I ask, God, please put your Holy Spirit upon me. I want to be a world changer. I want to be out there. There's nothing radical about being in the middle. <laughs> I'm like, we're going to be full on for the middle of the middle. Anyway, so uh, forgive me for developing, but the first couple of chapters become fundamental to the rest of the book, so we have to develop that one. And we live in a culture, what I'm learning here, is this is the part that deafens me, is everything is about being in the middle. Do not be extreme. Do not be extremely good. Do not be extremely bad. Because if you're extremely good, you're being showboating. If you're extremely bad, you're being needy. And neither one of those is acceptable in our culture here. Just be part of the status quo. We're going to guard the status quo and just be this. Don't be full on anything. Because you can't be full on mediocre. How do you do that? But yet Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to change the world. But here's the great part. You are going to be one of my tools. You'll be evident. And it says, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, <clears throat> Jerusalem is in Judea. So Jerusalem is its epicenter, which is where they are. Judea, in essence, we might think, is the borough that surrounds it. Samaria is its competing and neighbor. It would be its, should be its rival, and there are several reasons we won't develop for the, for the clarity. And obviously you get the end of the earth. Now let me make this clear one more thing, because I have to at least say this. We'll start moving forward. There are three different ways the Holy Spirit encounters a human being, according to Scripture. Jesus developed the first two for what it's worth in the Gospel of John. And he said the Holy Spirit is with you and he will be in you. Those are the first two. The simplest sense, the Holy Spirit dwells with, or we might say alongside, an unbeliever. He tells us that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's important to know that the world, that nobody, who, anyone who has not accepted Jesus Christ, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ, you cannot have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. That's what the Scripture tells us. Nobody who is not a Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them. But the Holy Spirit is dwelling next to them, pushing them to the cross. By the way, it's important to note, you're aware of the first time the Holy Spirit was mentioned in Scripture? Do you know how far in the, how far in the Bible you have to go for that? Genesis, the first two verses. You don't have to get the on that. Because the Spirit of the Lord was, was hovering, or literally moving. And it's important to note, there was the Spirit moved, God's Word went forth, then came light, and then came life. That just sounds like any revival. Do you know the next time you see the Holy Spirit? is in, in Genesis chapter 6, when he says, My Spirit will not strive with men forever. And the term strive in the Hebrew is beam, like Mr. Beam. Beam literally means beg or plead. Interesting. The first time he moves and life comes, the second time he begs, and it is the context of people who continually and at every point that their thoughts are evil and turn away from God. It is the precursor, of course, for the flood. So when I think about what the Holy Spirit is doing from the beginning, bringing life and then bringing them back to life, I get it. So the reason I say that is he dwells with an unbeliever. What he's doing is on the outside pushing you to Jesus, pushing you to be reconciled to your Creator. But the moment you accept him, according to Ephesians 1.13, it says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
And Romans 8 tells us, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you're not up to Him. It tells us in Galatians and in Romans that the moment we said yes to Him, He put His Spirit of adoption inside of us for which we cry out on the Father. It's the guarantee that we belong to Him. So, dwells with the unbeliever, the moment you say yes to Him, to Jesus' gift on the cross, God places His Holy Spirit in you to guarantee your inheritance. But then, as we read here, the third is says, with, in, upon. Upon is to empower for ministry. Does that make sense? So, which one of those would you not expect to find in the Old Testament? The in or upon? In, exactly. Now, the Holy Spirit comes upon Joshua. The Holy Spirit comes upon Moses. The Holy Spirit comes upon the seventy elders. Comes upon, matter of fact, it's a fun term when you look at Samson, because literally the Holy Spirit beats Samson. And I just love the idea that, but the, remember when God removed his Holy Spirit from Saul the king? Why did he remove him? He was removing him from the ministry, so he no longer needed to empower him for a ministry he, wasn't, he was no longer calling him to. But he placed it upon David, his Holy Spirit upon David from that point forward, for what it's worth. Okay, so now listen, I better pick this up. Chapter 1, Jesus says, he brings him to the, uh, he brings him up to the, uh, to the Mount of Olives, and as they're at the Mount of Olives, they say, is this it, the kingdom time? And he goes, no, 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 this is what really matters right now. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that becomes a structure. Chapters 1 through 7 become Jerusalem. Chapter 8 will be Judea and Samaria, and chapter 9 will begin our function in the ends of the earth. So they wait. Do you remember how many days Jesus had been teaching them? Forty days. Beautiful to note that. Well done, by the way. See me after class. <laughs> I had to do that. They don't. Uh huh. That was my wife. I was speaking to. <laughs> they don't know when. And they don't even know what. They just know they'll become witnesses. They don't know what that experience is going to be like. Let's face it. So you don't know. So what do you do? We get back together and we pray. We pray and we wait. And we pray and we wait. We start getting tired. Who wants to fall asleep that first night? You could miss it. Who wants to go to the toilet? You could be, what if you're not in the room? Remember, Thomas wasn't in the room and Jesus showed up. Come on. You know, I mean, how, it's like a day goes by, another day goes by, another day goes by. Your stomach starts growling. Peter's stomach starts growling. We think, was that it? You know, you know, you know, James starts snoring. That's got, oh, that's not it. That, because we don't know. We really don't know what we're waiting for. See, what it, God is perfectly choreographing is that Pentecost is coming, and it is the feast of the first great harvest of the year. And on that day, on that week, over a million men, to be honest, do you know that of the three major feasts that men were required, Jewish men were required to, the most attended was Pentecost? Do you know why? Because the seas were so rough. The other two. Because the other one, the first one, March, April, it was still, it was the end of the rough season seas. And the last one's in October, and that one's rough. 
But this one now is roughly June, and it is this, the mildest time. Now, look at the people that are on the mainland make their way in, but what about the people that were then dispersed to places they need to come by ship? That's why Pentecost was the most attended. Because it was the one where there were the most ways to get there that were safe. So over a million men are there. Now, we don't recognize. We don't know what God is doing. We're just waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Wondering what that's going to be like, knowing that we'll become witnesses. The same people who all fled Jesus at his arrest. Peter denying that he even knew him thrice. And here we are in this waiting. And as we're waiting, well, Peter goes, wait a minute. There's something wrong. I've been searching scripture, and I kind of noticed, this is a loose paragraph, I've been searching scripture, and what I kind of came to realize is that there's supposed to be 12 of us. And according to scripture, it looks like it said, let another take his, his office and let his, let his chair be desolate. In other words, he can't actually fulfill that role. Somebody else is going to have to take his place. Maybe the reason we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit yet is because we don't have the 12th God. Remember Jesus said, we sit judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Something's missing. We need to get another 12 God here. So who do we bring in? Well, we need people that have been all the way back. Let's just get somebody that's qualified with this. They've been all the way from the baptism of John all the way to uh, to when Jesus was uh, resurrected and we seen him. We need somebody who's been there from basically the, at the very beginning to the very end. That's what we need to see. All the way to his ascension. And two guys come forward. And I think, how sad, because that means one of those guys isn't going to make it, and you'll be forever known in Scripture as the guy who didn't make the cut. I'm like, oh, sorry, bro. I mean, you made it down to the last two. You were a finalist. So two guys come forward. They, you know, it tells us, by the way, that those a lot is cast into the lap, the decision is of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. So they're like, all right, Lord, tell us which one it is. And the lot falls on Messiah. And they're like, well, now we got our number 12. Now, by the way, I want to remind you, this is a historical passage. And the general rule is you don't build doctrine of a historical passage. Now, if God would have said, and he was so pleased with the way they did that, then I would go, well, but that leaves him on a thread. But because of that, it isn't like we're thinking, you know why we don't have the Holy Spirit come upon us like we really need right now? We need another person in leadership. All right, everyone come forward, we're gonna, and we're going to roll dice. I mean, that's where there's the danger, again, of trying to build a doctrine after this historical passage. So, that's the end of chapter 1. And it will not all be that long. Um, the promise was that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And the result was that they to be He's coming. What will they need? Witnesses. I'll drink to that. Tea. Tea. I'll drink tea to that. Remembering again that we are recording. It's weird, you know, when we're in our house. I only drink tea in our house anyway. The time between Passover and Pentecost is 50 days. That's like 10 past means 50. That's they call it that. It's also called Shabbat by the way, the Hebrew term. In essence, that's what Pentecost means. It's two of the three required feasts of all evil-bodied Jews. It's the festival of deliverance. It's followed then by the festival of the first great harvest. Here, Jews from around the world would bring fruits of their early harvest, like barley. Bring them to the Lord. It's a time of hope, because as the first fruits are, so should be then the entire harvest. And while the people are coming, bringing their hopes and their first great harvest, while the disciples are praying and they're waiting and they're hoping. Then, as we're praying and everyone else is bringing their little sheaves, there was a sound 
I find like a tornado or a hurricane and it fills the room like a mighty rushing wind. It never says they felt it, which is probably the weirder part. It's like it sounds like we are in the middle of a hurricane, but nothing in the room is moving. That would be weirder. But it sounds like a rushing wind. And then tongues like tongues of fire, like one tongue divides and all of like tongues on fire lands upon each of these men. And then they speak in languages. Now, the term tongues, we have a terrible habit, by the way, of turning a term in Scripture that, by the way, was not a Christian term. It wasn't birthed a Christian term. And they make it a Christian term that has a different meaning altogether. Like tongues. Glatos. It just means languages. When he says, speaking in tongues, that's a weird thought if you think about it. Chances are you're not speaking in tongues. Chances are you're speaking in a tongue if you think about it. Like if you're speaking in tongues, what that probably means is you did three words in Portuguese, a word in Italian, four in French, and then wonderful word. I don't know Italian. That's just for fun. I mean, it's like, I mean, that would be tongues. That's languages. But see how we've done that as a church? Again, in Mass, where we're like, ah, I was speaking in tongues. You were? How many? <laughs> I mean, just, again, because there's the dangerous part about it. Now, here's the fun part. I remind you, this is the most visited festival of the year, and people from all over the known world have gathered together. And this sound draws attention, and people start to wonder, especially when you hear the sound and nothing's flying out the windows, because there aren't any windows. They're just open cavities. You would expect at a point like that for something weird to happen. And so they all gather... And then these men burst out, if you will, and they start speaking in these languages. But then when they come out to be seen, they are the least educated-looking guys you can find on the planet. They're from Galilee. Most of the men in Galilee didn't even know how to read. As a matter of fact, Jesus being from Galilee, remember when he reads in the synagogue, they ask, how does this man know letters, being a Galilean? Do you know what it means to say, why, how does this man know letters? Do you realize what, he, what they're saying? How can this guy even read? Just, I mean, the fact that he even knows the letters of the alphabet. And that's what they're saying. It's like, Galileans don't know how to do that. So when they start speaking perfect languages, you know, imagine they, they kind of pop out and someone is speaking, you know, in essence, perfect, you know, in a, like perfect Finnish. And we go, now that is weird. And they say, the river or the first is a cool. No. And what we read is that the men then say, now remember, the only time since the Tower of Babel where everyone spoke a common language was during the time of Jesus. Because when the Greeks conquered everyone, they forced them to learn a common Greek. Common, the word for common is Koine. So we call it Koine Greek. Today, by the way, there is a language that is being forced upon a lot of other nations because they call it the trade language. In other words, if you're really going to try to trade with the world, you better speak it. Does anyone know what that language is? It's English. Yeah, if you really wanna, if you really wanna learn how to trade with the world, speak English. So there's the idea. So, but we don't force it upon them. But those days, if you were conquered by Greece, by Greece, you spoke that. So they could turn to each other and say, "How in the world can we hear them?" And we could look in the room, and I can look in the room and kind of realize we are not all from this same nationality. That's pretty evident. You know, Dan and I maybe a little bit. You know, but I look at Hugo, he's way too small. You know, and, and, I, and I look, and, and we look, and we go, how is it that we hear them speaking in our own tongues? 
Why is it plural? Because it's your language and my language. That would be plural. Right? And then they go through the languages. And as they start to list the languages, and I challenge you, again, don't just believe me, but as they speak to them, they're like, look at the Medes and Persians, they go, basically the Middle Eastern languages, the Asian languages, the sort of African, North African languages, and then in the middle of it all, someone says, and those of Judea. Wait a minute, did you get that? What language did they speak in Judea? The language they already spoke. What that tells me is somebody, or more than somebody, but at least one person, didn't speak in a language they didn't understand. The common thing was not that they all spoke in a language they didn't understand. The common thing is that they were all speaking of the wonderful, wondrous works of God. Because it's how does it that we hear them speaking the wondrous works of God? Now that is so key. Because what that means is, that, you know, when we go, well, if the Holy Spirit came upon us, I mean, there are groups that tell you you're not saved unless you speak in tongues, which is insane. By the time we go through 1 Corinthians, you'll realize that is nonsense. And they'll go, well, look, and, you know, and, well, you know what we call those groups? Well, you know what the groups would call themselves often? And pardon me, I'm not trying to criticize someone. They call themselves Pentecostal. Now, why do they call themselves Pentecostal? Because this is Pentecost, and at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit can bomb when they spoke in the... In other words, you ask them, what's the greatest thing that took place at Pentecost? They'll say, oh, we all spoke in tongues. Well, no, we didn't all speak in tongues. We all spoke in a tongue. Well, in one case, a guy actually spoke in his own tongue, but, or more than one. But if you think that's the greatest thing that ever took place on that day, you are so missing it. I remind you, Pentecost is the feast of what? The first great harvest. And now these people start to mock because they don't know what in the world is going on. Peter stands up, he preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people are saved that day. For 1,400 years, God has been preparing them. On this day, on this week, we celebrate the first great harvest. And during this time, guess what happened? God had his first great harvest. 3,000 people. Now, as far as God's concerned, the greatest thing was not them speaking in another language, and that was cool to them. Not that that isn't cool. But the greatest thing is that was a tool to bring people so they could hear the gospel. Could you imagine if what happened instead was that they were the fire went and settled at their navel and they could just squeeze and fire shot out of their navel? I mean, imagine what kind of church groups would come out of that and they'd be like, and then 3,000 people got saved and were like, we are going to Because that's the cool thing. You want to let's see, well, I bet I can shoot my fire more than you because I'm more spiritual than you are. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's where it gets to, though, right? It's like we're competing over who can be more spiritual by... Should about a hundred, should about a hundred, should about a hundred. And I've been to places where it's like, repeat the same thing over and over until you actually you mess it up enough that you're speaking in a tongue. Can you imagine how God feels about that? No. All of a sudden, a whole bunch, and again, you know that I'm not trying to do tongues. Well, I actually do speak in tongues, but the reason you haven't heard me is because unless I'm sure that there's somebody that actually can interpret, I'm told to be quiet. Now, for what it's worth, at that point then, now you've got a church that was 120 people that had exploded to 3,120. What do you do? Acts 2.42. Don't miss this. It says the apostles then dedicated themselves to four things. This says actually they continued steadfastly in them. Do you know what it means that they continued in them? That means they kept doing what they were already doing. 
See, if the church is healthy and doing what it's supposed to, it really doesn't matter how many people are there. It's just that in essence, alters its practice enough to cater to the people. But the same things are happening. It isn't like, well, now what do we do? People just got saved in our church. Could you imagine? Somebody just gave their life to Christ. Now what do we do? Uh, what we should be doing already. So here were the four things according to this. The apostles' doctrine was the first. They studied the Word. They wanted to make sure they were in God's Word. The second, fellowship. They wanted to make sure that now you could build relationships with Jesus at the center. Remember, koinonia, koinonia, is that common? Having something in common. To understand, it isn't like, hey, everybody here likes to play volleyball. We have fellowship. We have to learn how to have Jesus in common. You know what that's like? Because you know what else we all have in common? Sin. We all do it. So you know what happens if we don't consciously choose to build fellowship around Jesus as the center? We'll find sin as the way to... And this is what happens. You watch... And pardon me for using this as an example, but sometimes I watch this with women's prayer groups uh, where if Jesus doesn't become the center, if they don't learn how to make Jesus the center of it, it becomes a gossip chain. Because now it's just like, well, this is what I heard. Oh, man, we should just say, well, well, this is what I heard. And again, you watch it, no matter who it is, you watch amazing godly men by themselves, and then you put them together, and they're like setting something on fire. It's like, what happens? Because they're still, they have boys in common. You know? And so understand, one of the things is, it isn't like, and this is the danger, please hear me. People go to a church, and they're like, who do I connect with? And you kind of look around, because that's what we do. But the way we've learned to do that is, who do I know is dark-skinned, has sort of a Jamaican background, and maybe has some kind of background in law? Oh, and he's a Christian. And maybe over 25. Barbadian. Barbadian, yes. Yeah, I, I don't know where to put that. Yeah. Well, okay, see? <laughs> and the point is, is because that's what would be natural to do. And then she walks in, she looks and she goes, then there's like kids in here and there's some other places. <laughs> I don't think I fit in. How do we learn how to have fellowship? Look what we're doing right now. Look how what we have in common. But we learned this. And the church was doing this. So when this is happening and someone else pops in, guess what they see? That we are in the word learning. We are in fellowship. Third, breaking of bread. Jesus said, um, Paul would tell us, but when you break this bread, and Jesus would say, when you do that, you testify to his death until he comes. It's the declaration of the gospel. Could you imagine that the church says, well, we'll keep preaching the gospel because that's what we do. When I first came here, I remember one of the first things I was told by many of the clergy in our area is that nobody gets saved in England. People don't give their life to Jesus here. I would like to think you would all beg to differ because you've seen it in front of you. I laugh at the thought of that. And I asked them. I remember the one guy from one of the, I'll say, saint something because I want one of not the church that we're in. I said, let me ask you a question, please, sir. What is the gospel? What do you mean? I'm like, sincerely, what is the gospel in Jesus Christ? Could you tell me what that is? It's the good news. Well, what good news is that? I don't need to get into this conversation with you. You know, the gospel is the power of salvation to those who believe, and if the gospel isn't being preached, people will not get saved. Thank you. That was the end of it. By the way, I called him initially this year, but they used this building. 
Yeah, we're not using it. Anyway, so look at the Apostles' Doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, right? Fellowship, breaking of bread, the declaration of the gospel. I mean, you should be like, even if you didn't feel like you could preach the gospel, you didn't feel like, I don't know if I can preach the gospel at this point in my life, but I, I'd like to, you should at least know that you can bring them and they can hear it. I remember, man, you watch people, and I still see it every once in a while, where someone will bring in someone, and you see this expectant one, and they're like, oh, they're going to put the gospel, they're just going to probably get saved today. And you watch them, and it's like they're waiting for that moment. And then it's like, and who would like to receive Jesus? And they go, <laughs> you know, because they just, they just, because at least they knew what was going to happen. There's a couple that I'm going to do premarital with, and they're like, we would really, we would really like you to do our talk at our wedding. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to preach the gospel then, right? And they're like, that's exactly why we want you to, to do our talk. And I'm like, well, that upset someone? They're like, well, okay. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it was funny because I think Johnny was like, well, maybe you could save too. Anyway, so, and then last, so look at these are the four fundamental things this church did, and they continued in them. The Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, bringing the bread, and prayers. Not prayer, but plural prayers. I find that interesting. Now, prosyukamari, the word for prayer, is a casting of yourself before God's goodwill. It's an act of surrender. I challenge you, by the way, do you know that prayers traditionally, how prayers were prayed in a traditional Hebrew setting? They were sung by a cantor. Do you know what we have today that we actually say replaces that? What's that? Worship. Worship, yeah. You know what the funny part is? Pull out the top 30 worship songs right now. Go on to Spotify. And, and just see how many of them are prayer. They're directed towards God. And not like, hey, check it out, we're doing it right, but at least you know why the songs are written that in our church the way they are. I challenge you to find one that isn't a prayer. No matter where it gets, sooner or later, somewhere, we are talking to God, and the songs almost always end up, the set will always end up somewhere in surrender. You're like, why do we do so many songs about God? You can have all of me, and take all of me, and have me, and I surrender all. Why do you keep... Because it's what the word means. You understand, please notice, I just want to do what was right. And if this is what it is, this is what it is. So, the church just kept doing those four things. And when people say, I'm still trying to check out a church, my suggestion always is, I always take them to Acts 242 and say, hey, look at Here's what, here's what was happening, and the church continued to grow, and the people continued to grow, so it seemed like this was gold, this was working. Go to a church where you can find all of these, and if you can't find all four of these in a church, then go to two churches until you find all four of these things, because you need these four things in your life. No. It was simple then. They were single-hearted. It was selfless. They sold their goods and gave it to anyone who had need. It was public and private. They went from house to house, and they met in the temple. Hear that. There was house church and corporate church. There was both. People say, which one do you believe in? I, I believe in both. Isn't it interesting, by the way, where we are at the moment? Anyway, it was from house to house. People opened up their houses and they got invaded. And they all met together in a public place as well. And all parts of life were now Jesus. Now, do you get all your questions answered, by the way, those little things that were in there? 
Well, I'm going to help you on it. Just chapter 2. Lord, yeah. have mercy. Okay. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. Now, the church is exploded. And those people that actually had Jesus killed less than two months ago. Oh, by the way, let me just ask you this. You know when Pentecost hit, and you know how long Jesus taught, how long did they wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them? Did you get that? Well done. Well done. That is a long time to wait for something. You don't know what's going to happen. That's kind of a funny one. Chapter 3 and 4, well, not everybody's really excited about it. That guy they thought that they had killed and gotten rid of less than two months ago, well, now he's actually manifesting in a whole lot of people. More than 3,000, and that's a big mess on your hands. So not everyone's so chuffed about this. The enemy throws out his first assault, and that is intimidation. The same religious leaders who had Jesus murdered are up in arms. As known beggars become believers, middle-aged beggar, a local landmark at the entrance gate to the temple, beautiful, but the date date's called beautiful, the temple of the side of the city, lame from birth, is healed, and now he's gathered a crowd. Peter speaks again, and now those stinking believers move from 3,000 to 5,000. Talk about church growth. You know what his outreach program was? A couple of guys were going to the temple, and they saw a guy, and they lifted him up, and Peter preached the gospel again. The religious leaders realize they have an epidemic on their hands, so they seek to squelch it, so they go for the mouthpiece. They arrest John and Peter. Peter now, and they tell them, and by missed, don't miss this, please. They say, look it. Drop the name. Drop the name and we're going to be okay. I think it is so fundamental to realize they didn't tell them they couldn't meet or assemble or sing or they couldn't meet and pray. They didn't tell them that they couldn't call themselves what they wanted to call themselves. They said, if you, you, you need to know this. You need to drop the name. You cannot bear the name of Jesus anymore. We're going to be okay. Isn't it interesting that we have the same thing here? It's like, when it gets to the point where if you can't mention the name of Jesus, isn't it interesting the unbelievers said you can't mention the name of Jesus, but they still say his name? It gets to the place now where if you work in the government and you have a cross on, you better tuck it in or take it off altogether or you could get fired because you're wearing a cross. How interesting is that? Now, isn't it interesting, by the way, nobody gets fired by wearing a crescent moon? Well, anyway, for what it's worth, and understand, it's important to know that Peter and John stand up and they tell him, look it, at this point, God told me to do one thing and you've told me to do another. I have to obey God. So they release them because they head back to the fellowship. They, have no, they don't know what to do with them, but they do threaten them and therefore intimidate them. They release, they head back to fellowship, and, and by the way, that's really important that that's where they went back to. They, they didn't just go back to just, they didn't go to the bars to see the hard night. They went back to the believers and they prayed. You know what they prayed for? More boldness. And if they prayed for more boldness, what would you expect to happen? And it tells us the Holy Spirit came upon them again. And they spoke the word, the word boldly. Remember, I remind you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, what we should expect is boldness. So instead of getting them in protection mode, they further sell everything and distribute as needed. Okay. Did you, were you able to answer your question, sir? Um, there's just one, right? Is that three? Only three. Well, there should be three questions, I would say. The enemy's first attempt at stopping the Jesus movement? Mm-hmm. The requirement of the religious leaders? Okay, I know that was the same chapter. Yes. Which was, drop the name. Drop the name, yes. 
And believers pray and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and the result is boldness. Beautiful. Don't be sorry. See me ask God. It's my wife again. <laughs> Chapter 5. I didn't find I'm having fun. I hope you're getting this. The enemy mounts a second attack in the form of compromise. A young couple gets caught in the tide of total surrender and stakes theirs. And you understand positive peer pressure can be a good thing until you learn how to become a hypocrite. They sell their property just like the others, pretend to surrender it all for the needy. The selling of it wasn't a sin. The having it wasn't a sin. But the performance casting as completely committed was. God promptly kills that movement. <laughs> and with it, they're death. Believers, by the way, still grow, but no one wants to join the church now. Okay, Matt, if you went to church and God killed the compromiser, I think it would be telling if you didn't want to go. But it would be very telling if you weren't. And so the church continues to march on with power, and the enemy launches then its third assault, and that is legislation. Now they go beyond that, and they try to make it outlawed altogether. Apostles are arrested. There's a miraculous prison break. They're rearrested politely because they're afraid that they, now that the guards that they would be uh, stoned. And they're scolded for disobeying but still preaching Jesus. Peter and the others say we must obey God rather than man. And at that point, the president of the Sanhedrin calls for a sidebar. Do you use that term here? Sidebar? Okay. In essence, it's sort of like, can we just have this little conference over here? Away from this. Well, that's, anyways, that's the idea. So, the call for a sidebar introduces the idea. At this point now, the, the, the accused is out of the office, if you will. So they're out of the room. And this president of the Sanhedrin says, have you ever actually thought that this might be a move of God? And he brings, by the way, two historical events, a guy named Judas and a guy named Plutus. Both, by the way, religious leaders. Both called themselves extremely important people. Matter of fact, one called himself John the Baptist incarnate, or Elijah incarnate. And he, uh, both of the cases, they were going to go and fight the Roman army. And they led themselves. In one case, he said that he was going to lead them, uh, lead them to the Jordan River, and he was going to command it, and it was going to split open. It didn't, but instead what happened is, is the Roman army met them there, and the thing that split open was his head. Anyways, in both cases, uh, the guy died, and the moment that the leader died, they were dispersed, and that was the end of it. He goes, look, there was Judas and there was Judas. They both kind of led up. We killed Judas, we killed Judas, and then where are they now? They're gone. There was Jesus. He led a whole group of people. We killed him. And it's getting worse. Don't you find that a little strange compared to what we're used to? Have you ever actually thought, and then you actually might be fighting God? So this is my recommendation. And this is the most respected man that they had. As a matter of fact, they would say when this man died that the glory of the Torah died with him. And actually he said, you know, have you ever thought that if you're fighting God, then I recommend leave these guys alone. Hey, let's face it. Once you kill the leader... If it isn't of God, it's, they're all going to anyway. So What's the difference? Just let it happen. But if it really is of God, then you're going to be fighting God, and do you really want to do that? Leave these guys alone. And it says they all agree, and then the next thing it says, so they took them and beat them. I don't know how that's leaving someone alone, but let me just say this. If that's your view, don't leave me alone. Anyway, so they beat them, say again, don't say the name, don't say the name, don't say the name, and that leader's name is Gamaliel who, by the way, also happens to be, at that point, leading a protege. And that protege's name yeah. is Saul. Yeah. Saul. Yeah. 
So Mario is the president of the same thing. What's that? Sure. J A M A L. I don't know. G. G is in grandma. Here's the best part. When the people, when they leave, and by the way, it wasn't just John and Jay, or John and uh, Peter at this point, it was the apostles. When they left, it says they left rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. Remember what they told him that they couldn't share? And they said, you need to stop sharing that. Oh, but the opposite happens. They actually say, thank you, Lord, that you counted us worthy to suffer shame for your name. So what did they do instead? Daily in the temple and house to house, they continued preaching. Now the enemy, chapter 6, launches his fourth assault. And that is division. It is one of the enemy's greatest uh, and most effective tools. Please hear me in this. There is a radical difference between disagreement and division. Can there be unity in disagreement? Yes, there can. We, we even have the term, which, by the way, England coined, we can agree to disagree. But it's not about salvation. But division, on the other hand, is when two things are, were together and they're no longer together. The problem was the church was divided into two groups that were displayed by the neglect of needy widows. There were the traditional widows that were Jewish. There were also those that were Jewish by birth or blood, but they were Greek influenced, so they were called Hellenistic because Hellenists was in essence the figureheads for the Jewish or the Greek nation. There was then a thing called in the Greek Gongosmos, like Gong, Gongosmos. And Gongosmos means that they were actually saying things under their breath. Let me say it this way. It's the difference between a New Yorker and a British person. If you actually cut off a person in New York, they will roll down the window and you'll know exactly what, you're, you're, what they're thinking. Hey, so bad. What are you saying? Oh, no. you know, that's not going to be That's the opposite. Here, if you get cut off, you might just go, oh, your lip is going to hear it. Your lip is going to hear it hard. Or you might go home and make sure that somebody was in, or you're just you and your walls. They're going to hear it. But normally, the person who cut you off is the one person who's not going to hear it. That's this word, Gongosmos. And it reaches, by the way, the apostles. As it reaches, might we call them the A-team, the apostles. Uh, <laughs> and they did, that they, this is what they said. So the guys are like, look at, you know, we actually have a ministry right now. We are, we are studying the word and we are praying and we just, we are convinced that's what the Lord has us to do. And please understand, that's a really important thing to learn. Because just because somebody comes up with something doesn't mean it's your deal. To be honest, if someone else comes up with something or becomes aware of something, chances are they should be a part of the solution. The weirdest thing, of course, and, and let's face it, no matter where it is in the world, but the weirdest thing is when someone goes, you know, I have this conclusion there are these problems, this, this, and this, and this, and I just want to move to you because you should fix them. Unless you're the boss, that doesn't make any sense. A boss might go because he has at his disposal that those who serve, and he might go like, well, I've noticed these problems and now I'm going to delegate 
But it's a weird, wouldn't it be, that it was like the janitor, the person who just got hired, said, here's the four problems, and I'm going to the CEO and tell him he needs to fix these things. It's kind of a weird thing. So they come and they bring it to the apostles, and the ancient kind of looks at this, and it's, the, and by the way, a new term is introduced in this chapter. It says when the disciples were multiplying. Up to this point, it's been believers, 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 believers. But those that believe in Jesus have now moved their way into students. That's what a disciple is. And the disciples were growing. This division happened. And as this division happened, they said, you know what we need to do? This is the deal. They gathered the disciples, not the believers. That might be a, a larger mass, but those that are now committed to really studying and seeking. And it was among you guys. You guys need to pick seven guys. And I love this, because I remind you, when they dedicated themselves to these things back in Acts 2.42, one of them was fellowship. They had Jesus in common. They were not strangers who kind of came and were both bumping into each other in the night and then disappearing after church. These were people who were in each other's lives. And so they were like, who do you guys know that was, that is a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom? Now, it doesn't say anyone that has geriatric experience, anyone that has food handling experience. In other words, it was not about qualities. It was about character. But because these people were dwelling among each other, they knew. Like, in other words, if we were like, there was a need, who among you do you think really loves Jesus? Or you really see the evidence of salvation on? That you really see somebody that the Holy Spirit... Oh, um, let me ask you. When can you be absolutely confident this is full? Let me say it this way. If I were pouring tea, again, into this cup, when are you absolutely sure that it can't have any more? Excellent. When it overflows. So when, how, how can I be sure that somebody is full of the Holy Spirit? When they're overflowing. And so, that, you know, imagine, so we are all together, and they're like, Stephen, Stephen, clearly Stephen, that guy's full of the Holy Spirit. And they're like, oh yeah, Philip. So, and again, these are, these are the guys we hung out with. I'm like, Stop, Philip. And someone's like, McCann, oh yeah, McCanner, oh yeah. They go, like, oh yeah, that's also like two. Oh my goodness, yeah, of course. You know, and it's like they're mentioning these particular people, and I just love the fact that these guys knew. But there was something interesting because of these people, the one thing they all had in common is that their names were Greek. And it reminds me, it was the Greek widows that were being neglected. And the wisdom that the seven guys who all were picked to help serve and make sure that they were getting distributed to all had Greek names. Chances are they came from probably a Greek background. One of them wasn't even a proselyte, which tells us he wasn't even born Jewish. The result, by the way, the word of God spreads. The number of disciples, remember in the beginning they were multiplying, now they're multiplying greatly, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Priests. The last time we saw them, they were telling Peter and John that they better shut up or they were going to hurt them. Now these guys are getting saved. And what did it take? The selflessness of making sure the unity of what would be divided in the world? Exactly. And that's where I understand the six. I think it has to seven men from... Um, among them. Yes, yeah, I don't have my answers written down here either, so I think, oh, I want to think. Sure, thank you. Chapter 7, that one of those guys, Stephen, is singled out. He's accused, by the way, by the intellectual synagogue of the freedmen, ex-slaves, who came, by the way, from places where you sound really smart to come from. They accuse him of blasphemy in the temple. Stephen gives what is called a parasha, 
A parasha, by the way, is a declaration. It's like they question your Judaism, you actually go with a historical account. Let me tell you what I understand about Judaism. It'd be like, if you're really British, could you tell us the history of Britain? Be kind of the idea. It usually comes with a theme. His theme is, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That is not a way to make friends, but he is telling us. <laughs> so they move to stone him. And as they, as they stone him, he's actually asking God not to charge them with this sin. The only time I think we've ever heard that on earth before, that was Jesus at the cross. And uh, there has to be a consenting council member, somebody that when you're stoning someone, there has to be somebody within the Sanhedrin that is able to consent to that type of death penalty. And that's the person who, by the way, is responsible for guarding, if you will, the clothes that are thrown aside, the jackets and cloaks, as they sew them, and they lay them at the feet of a young Pharisee named Saul. And that's how they introduce is the guy that approves, gives him permission to kill Stephen. Now, Stephen is killed. And if Stephen is killed, and he's the first Christian that we've seen killed, although Christians were actually called in those days the way from John 14, 6, nothing happens. Hey, if I was a little concerned, especially after Gamaliel's speech, and I remind you, his chief student was Paul, imagine it's like, well, you kill this guy, and you kind of wait for the thunderbolt, you wait for the cloud, you wait for something, and nothing happens, and you're like, oh, I guess it isn't so dangerous after all. So... He goes mental. Saul then begins his deadly persecution. With no immediate retribution from heaven, Saul goes mental and makes havoc of the church, drags them off to prison, but the result is that everybody bails and, and, and leaves, except for the apostles, which is strange because apostle means sent out one. So the only ones who aren't going out are the sent out ones. Uh, but when they scatter, they go through Judea and they go through Samaria. How did, now remember when Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria. Now, interesting, he didn't say, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and then you'll get so persecuted that you'll run for your life, and then you'll, but that's how he gets it out. Now, what happens when a church is being stagnant? God has ways of spanking you to get you up and, and going. One of them is persecution, for what it's worth. What is important is that they fled, but they didn't flee their ministry. They just fled their location. So they went preaching the gospel everywhere they went. Philip, by the way, another one of those widow waiters, well, he ends up in Samaria and he preaches the word and a revival ensues. Peter and John come up there to validate this thing because now all of a sudden, oh my goodness, Samaria is actually becoming saved. Philip then, by the way, gets called out to the, the desert of the Gaza Strip to meet the frustrated treasurer of Ethiopia. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he came out of there. He was reading Isaiah 53 and he wasn't getting any of it. So Philip, I remind you, this guy's the treasurer and this guy shows up at his Bentley as he's driving back, if you will, knocking on the tinted windows and saying, what are you reading? And the Ethiopian goes, how in the world am I going to understand unless someone explains it to me? No, don't miss that. The way that the religion had gone is that you will never understand Scripture unless I explain it. Now, that is not the way God intended and if you think you can't understand the Bible without me telling you, I'm failing you. And uh, should I know it a little bit better? I've been reading it longer. I better know it a little better. But I would pray that you would know that God knows how to speak to you through his word and he doesn't need me to do it to you. The eunuch, the eunuch is a result of it, by the way, believes. He is baptized. 
and then the strangest thing in the water, in the weird uh, of it, and because they enter into the water, it tells us, which tells us he didn't just sprinkle them on the head, but they enter into the water, and he baptizes this guy, and as he comes up, Philip is gone. And at that point, if I was the Ethiopian eunuch, I'd be like, did that happen? But he's all excited, and he gets back in his Bentley, and he heads back to Ethiopia. And by the way, this is our first investment into the end of the world, or the end of the earth. Remember how he says you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth? This is our first installment into the end of the earth. And it happened to be a guy who was in the middle of nowhere, visited by a guy who left a revival just to go meet this guy. Talk about the humility of that. You can see Philip going, hey, man, okay. A revival's happening here, and it could be the revival of Philip, but it isn't the revival of Philip, it's the revival of Jesus. Actually, it's the Bible, because I don't know about the re part. And, and in that, he had that, and so what happens is that Philip, he disappears because he winds up in his eyes. How weird is that? You're dropping a guy, and you're pulling him up, and then you're like, where did he go? You know, where's the water? Where am I? How weird would that be? And so what does he do? He just preaches the gospel until he ends up in Caesarea, and he will live there and be called Philip the Evangelist in Caesarea. Now, there were seven widow leaders, and we've met two of them. Stephen was killed, but not at, before he gave amazing testimony. And Philip, who we see all these revivals, well, why, didn't the, uh, why, don't, why doesn't God make mention of the other five? Why didn't they go out and do amazing things? Because somebody still had to take care of the widows. And God wasn't going to neglect them to send these guys out. So there were still going to be guys taking care of them. They were still doing important things. So you follow me on that? We're almost at our break, which is probably good because, you know, I keep hearing midnight, but we started late. And you know what happens when we start late? I'm the one that looks like, that I'm making us late. Anyway. Okay. God used Saul the way he wanted to use him, which is to get everybody out of church to go preach the gospel and send them out. The first mission program, if you think about it, was flee the guy that's trying to kill you. Could you imagine? That's the way the mission worked. Now Saul has been used to launch the gospel out of Jerusalem. Now he's in appointment with the one that he was sure was dead. Saul got letters from approval from the high priest to synagogues all the way up 120 miles northeast to bind and extradite those nasty Jewish believers of Jesus. 120 miles north, uh, northeast in Damascus, a small group of Christians are cowering and praying because they know he's coming. Saul in Jerusalem is drafting soldiers. And, at, and up Saul goes to extinguish the plight of Christianity that is called the way. But whilst almost at the city gate of Damascus, Saul meets the one he was sure was dead, which means clearly he's not because he's having a conversation with him, and it will be the last thing he sees for a while. And now Saul is blind. Now, the blinded legal vigilante has become the very thing that he recruited and ventured out to destroy and arrest. He was trying to kill Christians, and now he's become one. Meanwhile, those Damascus Christians are unaware of their nemesis conversion. If you imagine, they're still praying. And I, and I love to see this scene in my head, because here we all are, we're praying. And imagine the prayers we would pray when we know that this guy has the full legal backing behind him to just kill us all. And so I imagine as we're praying, Daniel's crying and passing out. And, you know, Hugo's saying, God, just rip his arms off. He's praying the Vedic prayer. Break his teeth in his mouth and let his arms fall off and make him blind. Yeah, let him run. Yeah. Oh, God, why don't you just kill him on the way? It's a long ride up. Let him get hit by a runaway mule. You know, and that kind of... 
You know, and it's, you know, I mean, it's the kind of, those kind of things. And somewhere down the line in all of this, a little voice speaks out of the middle of all of this, like Anna, and she says, what if he just got saved on the way? And we'd all go, what? That's the stupidest thing I've ever done. God, kill him! Kill him! Because it would seem so crazy that that would happen. But it's what happens. So while we're praying, Saul is blind and he's trying to figure out what in the world to do with his life now. One of those guys, by the way, is a guy named Ananias. And he's deployed to retrieve him and then heal him and baptize him. Now Saul's a Christian. And he has all of those years of Jewish practices and he tries to add the new Jesus to the old practices. You know what he does? It tells us he confounded and he proved those words, by the way, mean argue and debate. And God says, I actually don't want my gospel going forth by argument and debate. Interesting, because the church is still trying to do that today. But everywhere he goes then, what happens ultimately is they try to kill him. He has the Jerusalem, and the church there, once ravished by him, is now understandably reluctant to welcome him in, until the trusted Levite named Son of Encouragement, that's his nickname, Barnabas, basically vouches for him, Paul tries to argue there as well. And as he tries to argue there in Jerusalem, debate and so forth, they try to kill him there. So they send Saul back to the land of his birth, which is the land of Tarshish, T-A-R-S-U-S, which happens to be southeast Turkey. But what's interesting is what God tells us next. It says, Then the church in Jerusalem had peace, was edified, and was multiplied. Which tells me that at that moment, though Paul had the best intentions, what he was doing was keeping the church from having peace. He was keeping the church from being edified and keeping the church from multiplying. Oddly enough, because he wasn't sharing the gospel this morning, he was just arguing. So Peter, by the way, finds a guy in Lydon named Aenus. He heals him, by the way. Peter then is sent next door to Joppa to raise a girl named Dorcas which, by the way, Tabitha means gazelle. The result, many people then in Joppa, which, by the way, today is Jaffa, just south of Tel Aviv, where the airport is. Uh, and so what happens is Peter winds up staying there for a while with a guy that's a tanner, or, if you will, a guy that's a leather worker. Now, you're probably aware of the fact that's actually not a kosher job. Because you know what leather is, right? It's dead skin. But you're probably, maybe you're aware of how you prepare leather, a couple thousand years ago. You don't have the chemicals you have today. So what did you use to make leather tough and durable? What's that? The sun. Well, you used the sun, but you had to put it in a liquid first. Pee. Urine. Yeah, and by the way, if you don't think they still do that, go to Camden Market. You can tell the difference. Hey, and Lucy can both tell you the difference between processed leather and peepee leather. You know what the difference is? The smell. You ever walk by one of those leather shops and you go, oh, what is that? Peepee leather. Because it's so extremely effective. You drape it in the peepee, you leave it out in the sun, and that is some tough leather. So Peter, the good kosher boy, is actually at a place where they're dealing with dead things and draping them in pee-pee and hanging them out in the sun. And they're going to make them, a, they're going to make them lunch. I don't know if I want to join them for that. Peter then goes into it, and while this is happening, God is recruiting. And this is kind of why we left it at this point, is 
is that Saul is converted. You know, he tries this old, he tries this new faith with tactics like debating. He's stripped, shipped off to his homeland of Tarshish, and he's now ahead of the southeast of Turkey. And now you have Peter and Joppa hanging out at this place. Chapter 10. Cornelius now, who is a Roman centurion, is praying, even though he's Roman. By the way, I challenge you that nowhere in Scripture you're going to find that a centurion has a bad write-up in Scripture. Because centurions, by the way, were not uh, elevated to that place because of their talent, but first and foremost by their character. The Romans didn't want a person in a position like that that had all of that weaponry that they couldn't trust. So he commands his commander to send for Peter because the angel tells him, you need to go and get to Peter because he's got something he needs to tell you. Peter, by this point now, is prayer napping in Joppa. And God puts down the bug and beast buffet. It's a big picnic that comes down with all these things that are unkosher, like, I mean, I think like a bat and a weasel. And it's like, what he says, kill, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's like, go away. I'm a good kosher boy. I don't eat those things. And God says, look at Don't call common or unclean what I've made clean. Happened three different times because you're probably aware that Peter needs things in threes. Peter, do you love me? You know, after I don't know the man. And then somebody says, hey, at the door, we're looking for Peter. Uh, Cornelius up in Caesarea, which is, by the way, the capital, the, public, the secular capital of Israel. Yeah, he, 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 an angel told him to go and ask for him, and Peter goes, I get it. Don't call common what I've made clean, I should go. He takes six guys with him, by the way, six Jewish guys. I imagine they were probably nervous. Peter walks in the house and he finds the house full of people. And it's like every one of Cornelius' family and friends has been now invited. And he preaches. And as he preaches, the Holy Spirit jumps on them and they believe and they begin to speak in different languages just like Pentecost. And I love that. Chapter 12 is our break, by the way, and we're almost there. And we'll only take the break for five minutes, just so long enough to have some tea or something, and we'll jump back in, because the rest of it goes quick. It's easy for me to say. My goal is, and it will be done by nine. How's that? The Pharisees now, a whole new group emerges in chapter 11, because now Peter has to go back to the church in Jerusalem, and he just preached the gospel to Gentiles. And I'll remind you, not everybody was of Gamaliel Vilk. There were a lot of people that were under Shammai's influence that actually believed that a Gentile was only on earth to fuel hell. So when the idea of them being saved was impossible in their minds. And those group, a group of those people got saved. And when they got saved, they tried to drag their whole philosophy over the idea that God saves people, and I'm saved, but he wouldn't save a Gentile. And the group is called the circumcision. And they condemn Peter for preaching Jesus to the Gentile. Peter gives a testimony of events, emphasizing, and this is so important, because I remind you how the Holy Spirit comes upon them in three different times they speak in tongues, and we have two of them now, right? Pentecost in chapter 2, and then these Gentiles in chapter 10. And you've got to see the brilliance of why God had these people speak in languages then. Now, please understand, our tongue still for today. Hey, anything can be for today that God's done in the Scripture if it works to bring people to Him. I'd be a fool to say, come on, that's, nobody does that today. That'd be stupid. God never said, okay, we're done with that. People use a text in regards to this idea that when perfection comes, I shall know as I am known, 
and then these things will be unnecessary. But do I know what I am known right now? It does tell me that there will be a day I'll stand before Jesus, and at that point I'll know what I am known. And at that point I won't need that because I'll have the living word in front of me. I won't need to speak in tongues in heaven. That will be silly. Here, on the other hand, God can use whatever he wants. Because I remind you, God is the solicitor, and it's just one of the tools he can use. So I, you know, I can't say, oh, he wouldn't use that tool anymore. Why not? If it works. Back to our point on all of this, these people are condemning Paul for this. But what Paul does is he gives his testimony and goes, no, you need to understand, when these people believed, guess what happened to them? Now, what would have happened instead that they levitated? Or called on fire? Or that they all glowed? Those would still be real, really cool things, right? But what would happen, first of all, I'm not too sure exactly how people get saved from that, but God could do what he wants. But Peter has to go and testify now that Gentiles got saved. And what would happen if Peter went back to these groups of circumcision and said, well, they prophesy. They all started prophesying the moment that they received Jesus. You know what they would say, right? Yeah, but they don't speak in tongues like we do. Do you see how that goes? So for Peter to say, well, I, they started speaking the languages just like us back in chapter 2, now you have to realize it's the same thing, so there's nothing they can argue about. That's what going to God in this. And as a result of that, the leaders go, well, it looks like since they received the same gift that we received, well, then clearly it looks like God saved Gentiles too. That was the end result. So they write this thing, and they have to go and tell everybody that this is their conclusion. And while all of this happens, a new church erupts because of people fleeing Saul. Do you remember when Saul persecuted Jerusalem and everyone fled? 200 miles due north is a place in Syria, hotbed today, called Antioch. Now, I remind you, that church was, in essence, for the most part, planted by people fleeing Saul. And now we're here to say. And Saul now has to go and tell people that Gentiles could get saved. And he's got this, this edict, if you will. But you have to bring somebody from Jerusalem people trust. Otherwise, how do you know Saul didn't just write it himself and just start showing up to these places? He needed somebody to rep Jerusalem. That makes sense, right? So who do they bring? Well, remember that Barnabas guy that they really trust? That, by the way, who brought Saul in, in the first place to help Saul? Well, he's the one who got Saul. So now Saul and Barnabas head up to head up in the hands of and they went up in Antioch. Well, that's kind of the idea. Well, in this case, Barnabas is the one who winds up doing this, and that's the case. Radical things start happening. So, Barnabas... Uh, sees this church of brand new believers up in uh, sorry, up in Antioch. And it's at that point he realizes they don't have a pastor and he brings Saul in to pastor the church because he knows he's a teacher. Like, I have a little confused yeah. because you were saying as, you know, yeah, let, it's my fault. Yeah, let me say that again. <laughs> Peter's the one who testifies in chapter 11, clearly, because he was, a he was the one who spoke to Cornelius. Saul, at that point, is still up in Tarshish. Remember how they shipped him off. Mm -hmm. So Barnabas is the one who has to go and hand out his edict and start testifying that it's tr the truth. He goes up and winds up in Antioch, realizes that the church needs a pastor, and then goes and finds Saul back up in Tarshish and brings him down to become pastor. Thank you. That was very confusing. 
is interesting, by the way, in this place of Antioch. Did that I just blow your heads open with that? Did you get that? Peter all the way. Peter until, yeah, thank you. Paul was a foolish thing to say. That was wrong. Now that he's up in Antioch, Barnabas, and he recognizes that he's a pastor, he goes and finds Saul up in Tarshish in southeast Turkey, brings him down. Not yet. He will not be called Paul until the mission field. And at that point, then, they stay there for a while. It is interesting that in Antioch was where the new title comes up for what we're called. Up to the point I remind you we were called the way. Now we're starting to be called Christian. Now I want to remind you, Christ is a Greek word. Remember what the Hebrew word is that's the counter of that? Messiah. Jesus, Joshua. Christ, Messiah. So, to call them Christian is a Greekized term of messianic. We would say messianic would be the idea. No, all of a sudden the prophet shows up. I'm sorry, because that was see what happens when I get going. There was a, there was somebody that pops up from Jerusalem and he's a prophet named Agabus. He's the show and tell prophet, by the way. Every time he shows up, he does something, he says he shows them. In this case, he shows them that a great famine is going to happen in Jerusalem. And they're like, well then or actually he says in the whole world, and they're like, Well, we need to take a collection and get it down to Judea, because those people are going to be hurting. So they do so, and they're going to bring it down. Well, how, who's going to bring, who do we trust that will bring that money down to the church in Jerusalem? And we'll, let, we'll let Paul and Barnabas do that. So they send their pastor, Paul. Saul, still at this point. And they head it down there, and that's the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12, so we can take a break, so I can actually get my head together and say things the proper way. Here enough, that's in. Now that Saul has been converted, somebody needs to persecute Christians, and Herod steps in to do so. He kills James, who's the first uh, of the apostles to be killed, but not the first Christian to be killed. Who's the first Christian to be killed, do you remember? Stephen, right, excellent. Then he arrests Peter during Passover. He's kept by four squads of soldiers. An angel lets Peter out. He returns to John Mark's mom's house, where everyone's praying for his release. And here's another one of those great moments for Anna. Because here we are all praying again, oh Lord, don't let Peter die. And someone goes, well, what if he just gets released? And we're like, oh, that's crazy. Even though it's already happened once in the book of Acts. But we're praying, Peter gets released, he comes to the door, he's knocking at the door. And at that point, you know, it's like Deborah answers the door and he's like, who is it? You know? And, uh, and it's like, it's me, Peter. Remember, we're all praying, God, release Peter. God, release Peter. Don't let him die. And Deborah's at the door and she says, ah, it's Peter at the door. Door. And, you know, and somewhere in all of that, Hugo looks at him and he's like, woman, you're crazy. You're crazy. You know, th- th- that's not the way it works. Oh, God, please release Peter. Please release Peter. And they're like, well, what's wrong with you? What don't you believe me? He's free. He's at the door. You know, and, and Hugo's like, oh, no, that's not the case because she's so excited. She doesn't let him in. We're all so busy praying for his release. We don't actually think that somehow our prayers are going to mean anything. How weird is that? And then finally... Someone's like, what is it? You know, Marcy goes, oh, you open the door. So they open the door, and you're sitting going, what took you so long? And Deborah's like, yeah, I know what you mean. And that was the beauty of the chapter. But while that happened, God got to deal with Herod. Now understand, Herod was an opportunist. And because Herod was an opportunist, the people in the north 
were under his dominion, and he basically gave them a dole, a certain allotment of food, and the people were starving in Tyre and Sidon. So they gathered together, because he was taxing them more than he was giving them, and they showed up there, and they're like, we need to meet about this. Herod stands up and gives this beautiful oration. He's going to just wow them with his speech. And the people go, oh my goodness, this isn't the voice of a man, this is the voice of a god. And Herod goes, in essence, doesn't do anything. He's like, yeah, check that out. And God's like, mm, no, you ain't. And so it says, then he, all of a sudden, his body was eaten by worms and he died. And imagine, we're like, it's the voice of a god. And then it's like, ah. no, like, ooh, maybe not. And that's kind of the idea. And that's kind of, meanwhile, by the while, Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch, having dropped off that aid that they gave to Jerusalem church. And that's the end of chapter 12. They arrested Peter. After James was killed, Peter was arrested, but then he got, you know, God broke him free. Now, I know it's an incredible amount of information, but I want to remind you, this is to be referenced for the rest of... When we start going through the uh, epistles, we'll be able to refer to this, more specifically, even the stuff beyond this. That's why I, can only co- I don't have to cover but major points, because I have it all, for the most part, in front of you. So I'm going to pray, take about five minutes to let your brains be with gel at night, and then we'll cover what happens from this point on. Is that fair enough? Lord, I know this has been a lot of information, and I just love you and thank you so much for it, but please now, Lord, give us a few minutes to just read your night, but be ready to receive the rest in Jesus' name. Amen. The church basically explodes from Jerusalem. It took persecution to get them out of Jerusalem, and now the church is kind of now scattered in all of these different directions. But now the whole... Uh, the whole camera crew moved, in essence, really, from Jerusalem to Antioch, because Antioch is kind of where things are happening right now. Things are cycling, drying up with the apostles are staying in Jerusalem. They're basically, at this point, just kind of passing judgments on whether something is legit or not. They're kind of the judges, but they really aren't going out. They will, ultimately, by the way, but it'll take more persecution to get them out of Jerusalem. So Lord, just redeem these next ten minutes and just make it perfect, I pray. In Jesus' name. We left off with Paul and Barnabas, if you remember, dropping off the the relief that they had received because of this prophecy down in the Jerusalem church. So they have to head back. When they come back, they actually, as they come back, um, the Holy Spirit sets them apart. Now, I remind you, Paul and Barnabas were, in essence, kind of the leaders of the church in Antioch, part of the leadership. And what we do read is there are a lot of others now. And God, I love the fact that God always shows us that he raises up others before he sends another out. And that's just cool. He doesn't just sort of send someone out and then hope that the vacancy can be filled. Scripturally, God always seems to have this way where he fills the entire need prior, makes them redundant in actions, and then he sends them out. And that's the case. And for the rest of the book now, of Acts, started at the ascension of Jesus, ends with Paul in prison in 62 A.D., 60 to 62 A.D., which lasts, lasts about 30 years that way. The whole book of Acts is about 30 years long. Um, now the camera crew goes mobile. In essence, there'll be four trips. It's important to note, with each of the trips, Paul will go on the first one. Again, Saul gets the name change on this first trip. So do this trip roughly 1,400 miles. And then we'll end up back in Antioch, their sending church, and spend a good deal of time there. 
but they'll take a much larger trip, almost twice as much, go back to Antioch and spend some time there. By the third trip, they'll only bounce off of there and really then they'll come back, and then ultimately they'll, they'll make his way to Rome. Those are our trips. Each one of them has a great deal of significance in their own life. The first one he goes with Barnabas. It's important to note it was Barnabas and Saul in the beginning. And they go to Cyprus. They also take with them uh, Barnabas' cousin, his name is John Mark. Remember how John Mark's mom's house was where we were praying for Peter to be released? Well, that's the same place. Well, that's the son, John Mark. And so John Mark now is, is Barnabas' cousin. Barnabas, by the way, was a Levite from Cyprus, so he goes back where he came from, and we start to minister. We hit the east side, that's geographically easy, because that's the closest, and we work our way to the west. As we work our way to the west, and we, just, we kind of showed up and taught at the synagogue on the, on the right side, but when we got to the west side, we got some real persecution. I got it, the sorcerer stood up, and there was a guy that God called very intelligent. How many guys in Scripture does God say this was an intelligent man? But the guy's name was Sergius Paulus. By the way, for what's worth it, his name literally means born a little wonder. How fun is that? He's like Stevie Wonder of the day. And, uh, because uh, Paulus means least or little, insignificant kind of the idea. And it is there at that place that Paul, Saul becomes Paul. Interesting. At a place where the guy already named Paul. Who was the governor of the area? Ultimately, Paul does a showdown with this, uh, sorcerer. And calls him blind. I mean, Paul would know what it'd be like to be blinded, then blinded. And the guy goes off and he's blinded, and ultimately, with that, um, says, so does Paul's belief. So we have our first real conversion on the trip. Actually, not, not until he gets to the west side of Cyprus, and not until this crazy showdown with this sorcerer happens. Is the showdown at 15? Yeah. No, no. The showdown is actually no. No. Why not No. That's actually after his first trip. No, it's okay, yeah. So at that point then, they go, they've now made Cyprus. And again, you can see the map, hopefully for this. As they go from the map, they head out north at this point, And they head up north to, this, to the southern coast of uh, Turkey. And they start making their way up the Midlands. They go to Iconium, where a violent attempt by both the Jews and the Gentile leaders to stone and abuse them. Lists for Iconium, where he preaches the gospel. Uh, there's a guy that was crippled from the room that is crippled, crippled from the womb who was raised by the Jews from Antioch. Um, and, and Iconium stone him and leave him for dead. And then he preaches the gospel in Derby and then starts coming back. Yes? Can you please just help note that there's two Antiochs real quick? Thank you. There are, there's one called the city Antioch in the middle of Turkey. And there is the one Antioch that was his sending church in Syria. And that's why I try to list them as Antioch, Syria, where he came from, and under the Yeah, okay. this is Antioch, probably there. Huh? Thank you. But it is important to note when they actually get to Turkey, they are now absent that little John Mark. It was too much, and one way or another, John Mark goes back to Jerusalem, which is mom's house. Now, as they come back and head back to their church, something interesting happens. Because they head back now to their church. Uh, they spend a long time with the disciples, but then comes the showdown in chapter 15. Remember those guys who said, Gentiles can't be saved? Well, now they're going at it again, and they're like, well, maybe but the issue is that Gentiles need to become converts of Judaism first. And then maybe they could be saved. They're trying to find a technicality to keep their doctrine the way it was, which is Gentiles don't get saved. God wants them for help. So maybe if Gentile stops being a Gentile, well then, I guess, 
And so they have this big showdown, and the showdown is could not this time do Gentiles have to be Jewish? Remember, the first one is can Gentiles be saved, chapter 11. This is their second showdown, and it's do they have to become Jews? And the answer is no, they don't. That becomes a debate. Now they have to send the letter up, but the problem is both Barnabas and Saul now have moved to Paul and Barnabas. Not only does Paul get a name change, but the billing changes. Barnabas doesn't get top billing anymore. Uh, he's second. Well, now you can't have them validate the letter from Jerusalem because they're both from Antioch. So now you have to bring more guys up to validate. Does that make sense? So they bring up two more guys. A guy named Woody, his name is Silas, and another guy, another guy, another guy as well. Uh, and the only reason I say that is they have to come up, but then this Silas character, Judas and Silas, Silas goes up there, and as Silas goes up there, he likes what he sees, and he kind of pulls a Barnabas, and he doesn't want to go back. So Silas stays. The other guy, Judas, by the way, heads back. Now you have Paul and Barnabas in their sending church in Antioch, Syria, with a new guy. And the guy's name is Silas. And now Paul goes, you know what we really need to do is we need to go back and check on those churches we planted. Remember that Cyprus in the middle of Turkey, right? So they do. They're like, okay, well, yeah, sounds like a great idea. The problem is that Barnabas really wants to take John Mark with him. And Paul is not going to challenge the integrity of a work with a guy that he knows has been historically a failure. Barnabas, he's a people person, so he wants to see the guy restored. Paul doesn't want to risk it in ministry. They're both right and they're both wrong. And what, what they get in the ultimate is the guys agree to part ways. And Barnabas, he goes back to Cyprus and checks on the churches there. I remind you that's where he's from. Kind of the last we really hear in the book of Acts that we'll read of them in the epistle. Paul, on the other hand, while he's then got the area of Turkey, you can see them not only getting saying we're parting ways, but we'll part, we'll divide and conquer. You then take Cyprus, that's where you're from. I'll take those ones in Turkey. Well, now he doesn't have a guy to go with him like Barnabas, so he takes Silas. Remember the guy that came up with him. Now, initially on their first trip, Paul had, you know, if you will, there was a leader and an assistant and an apprentice. Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul initially, and John Mark. Well, now there's Paul leading the expedition, but now he takes with him an assistant, that's Silas, but he doesn't have an apprentice. So when he gets back to that middle of Turkey, he scoops up Timothy. By the way, in the place where Paul was stoned and left for dead the last time he was there, so it wasn't like Timothy didn't think he was in for an easy ride. And once he picks them up, he actually heads to, and it's important to note, to the area of Galatia. Now, Paul will read, will read, by the way, and again, you'll have this as reference, so you can look at this when we go through, the, through those books. Paul will actually say, you know that it was out of great physical infirmity that I actually showed up in Galatia. So Paul was really sick when he got there. Interesting, because what it tells us is that when Paul got to Galatia, he was actually forbidden to preach the word in Asia, then he went to Mysia, and he couldn't preach the word in Bithynia. In other words, Paul was in Galatia, and he wanted to go due west to Ephesus, and he couldn't. Holy Spirit, we don't even read how, but he just couldn't. So he wanted to go due north to what is today is Istanbul, and he couldn't. So ultimately he went up northwest in the area of Troas. So, Important to note, we put the things together. Paul was really sick, wound up in Galatia. Looked like something that had to do with his eyes. We'll see that when we get to Galatia. The book of Galatians. We mm-hmm. can't make it. Are you guys finding it? Not on the... Where's the Galatia on the... Is it second journey? Or his yeah, this is his second journey. Is the Athens Corinth. 
That's the third. No, it's the second, sorry. Well, it's because it's playing significant. I mean, other than the fact you just kind of passed through. <coughs> but on this particular trip, because he's in Troas, he gets a vision of a Macedonian man, and that gets Paul into Europe. Paul never visited Europe on that first trip. It was just, I remind you, Cyprus and the center of Turkey. Now he's gone to the center of Turkey. He's made his way to the west coast of Turkey, and he gets a vision and he winds up in, uh, in Europe. Which is initially first Macedonia, for which, by the way, he winds up and again highlights Philippi, where the church, and it's important to note, was planted by a bunch of women praying at a river. And so that means the church plant in Philippi was initially a bunch of women at a river. But one of them was rich and had a house. Her name was Lydia. And so the, the first church building in Philippi was Lydia's house. Now, the reason I say that is when we get to the book of Philippians, it is the most feminine letter in regards to its emotion and its sort of sensitivity of all the letters. And I get it because it's a really strong feminine factor. You know, for uh, but there is this radical persecution everywhere you go. Philippi, he, one of the girls that's there, and it's a kind of a keynote, it's a girl that's following him around, she's possessed, but she says, and here, don't miss this, she says, these men are servants of the Most High God telling you the way of salvation. Sounds like great PR even if by possessed girl. But don't miss how subtle it is. What is her focus? These men are servants of the Most High God probably the way of salvation. What is she drawing attention to? What's her subject matter? The men. Them. And don't miss how subtle that is. Though they are servants of the Most High God and they are proclaiming the way of salvation, the focus is still on them. And one of the things the enemy does is he subtly gets you to focus on you. And that's what she's doing. Paul finally had it, cast the demon out of the girl, and now she's worthless to her owners because she's a slave girl. And so they have arrested. Ultimately, God will do the jailhouse rock, and he's escorted out of town, but not first, but not without first visiting that house of Lydia. And again, I remind you, you've read this, so it isn't like I'm telling you stuff you haven't heard. I'm just trying to put it in the package. So you can imagine showing up at the church, and Lydia and going, hey, we're fine, we're fine. So we're beat up a little bit, we're fine. They went up to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, by the way, there is a good response there, but unbelieving Jews, by the way, really gather up a bunch of troublemakers at the marketplace, and they storm the guy Jason's house that was there. They dragged them out of the city. Uh, I'm sorry, dragged them uh, and the others to the rulers of the city, and then that's since they posted bail, and then they get Paul and Silas to flee at night. We don't read about Timothy, but Timothy just went with them. Brea was the next place, 10 miles to the west of there, and those people, by the way, not only believe the message, but they they compare it to Scripture. But then the people in Thessalonica hate Paul so much, they hear that Paul's there. He's ten miles away, and they make it over there and chase him out of town again. Paul finally makes his way into Greece. He heads down to Athens. And there, by the way, he has a radical encounter. Because from there, for the first time, he tries to get philosophical again. Sort of that debate and argue thing like he started with. And yet the two things he doesn't mention, by the way, is Jesus Christ by name and crucified. You missed that. And so, he'll use other terms. He won't talk about the crucifixion of Christ. And so he has a very tepid response. I mean, tepid in the sense that people are going to kill him, but tepid also because not all the people get saved. So he makes his way to Corinth next, which is the debauchery capital of the area. It's important to know that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, 
I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and being crucified when I came to you. Those are the two things he didn't do in Athens. And you can see, people go, well, look at, and they draw, they try to say, that's how you should do church. Look at how he did things in Athens, how he engaged the culture and he quoted poets and how he, you know, and then they use all of these different things and yet Paul himself would say, there's again this drawing doctrine from historical passage, but then Paul himself would say, you know, when I left there, I said, don't do that again. Preach Jesus and then crucified. And if I'm to follow Paul and like learn what he's learning, I kind of go doing that to step back. So ultimately goes to Corinth. Corinth is important because he'll spend over a year and a half there. And if he spends over a year and a half there, a church is planning. Now it's important to note, this is the second longest time Paul will ever be in one spot as far as church planning. And it's in Corinth, the debauchery capital. <coughs> Ultimately, by the way, he'll leave there and make his way back. He pops in at Ephesus. For, remember how he wanted to go there but was forbidden by the Holy Spirit? Well, he pops in for just a moment, but he's like, you know, I'm not staying very long because I want to make the feast in Jerusalem. So I really just can, I want you to go, I will be back. And he leaves. And he heads his way. He makes back to ascending church and then ultimately heads down to Jerusalem for their feast. It is important to note, though, that he ultimately knows now that he needs to get back. And what's the one place I would expect him to go on this trip? Ephesus. Because remember how he promised that he would go? Well, and that's what he does. Major points, by the way, on this, on now we're on that third trip. Paul makes his way through Galatia again, strengthening the disciples. And as he makes his way through the center of Turkey, he is beelining ultimately to Ephesus. In Ephesus, excuse me, he will spend over three years there, and he spends more time in Ephesus than anywhere. Longest Ephesus, second longest Corinth. You guys with me on that? And with that, then, ultimately, and again, there's so much more to share, but I'm just trying to, you know, not keep it here forever, as much as I selfishly would. Uh, it is here, by the way, that he meets a bunch of guys who had been discipled by a guy named Apollos. Super gifted speaker, but only knew the baptism of John. In other words, he could tell them, he could convince them you were a sinner, and then tell you you need to stop sinning and repenting, but if you, there was no, we'll give your life to Jesus, he'll forgive you. So when Paul sees these guys, he sees no evidence of the Holy Spirit, but then they haven't received Jesus, so why would they have him? So Paul preaches the gospel, he closes the deal, they receive the Holy Spirit, and guess what? That's our third time that people speak in tongues. So what would be so important about this? Remember how the first time was at Pentecost? Do you remember where the second time was? Excellent. The Gentiles in Caesarea. And you go, that proves, if nothing else, that the Gentiles received the same God the same way as the Jews did, right? So why this one? Where is Caesarea? Does anyone remember? It's in Israel. Though it's the secular capital of Rome, if you will, in Israel, it's still in Israel. So why would this be so important? Because what this shows is you don't have to be in Israel to have to, to meet God the same way. And you know, people do this to this day. Some of us are old enough in Christ to remember things like the Toronto Blessing. People were leaving to go to Toronto because somehow you would get something special from God if you went there. It's if God would set up shop there and nowhere else. This tells me that God will save not only the Jew and Gentile, but he could do it anywhere. Because this was completely Gentile territory. It wasn't even Israel. So you could see God validating me again. So what it was. So ultimately what happens is that 
something happens pretty radical. He goes ultimately to Ephesus, spends three years there, and then makes his way around Macedonia. I remind you, that's kind of Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. He heads down to Greece again. Ultimately then goes back to Troas. Remember Troas? That's where he got the vision in the first place to go into Europe. He pulls an all-nighter, and that's where the guy falls out the window, falls asleep. Paul lays on top of him. To me, that's even more frightening to think than, than the guy who actually gets his life back. You know, he <laughs> takes him upstairs. I can't imagine coming back to life and then having Paul on him. And then he takes him back upstairs, and he's like, so where did I, where did I leave off? And then he just picks up and finishes his all-nighter. Ultimately, though, something pretty radical happens about this time, because from this point on, Paul knows he needs to get to Jerusalem. And if he knows he needs to get to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit keeps telling him that chains and imprisonment await him. Every place he goes, he's told that. So ultimately, he makes his way back, and if you see the map, he makes his way back, makes his way to the landmass, skirts around where his church was, his home church, if you will, and then makes his way to Jerusalem. And that's where he is arrested, and that takes us to our last portion of this to close it. Are you following me so far? Mm-hmm. First trip, Cyprus, middle of Turkey. He makes his way back. First with, with Barnabas. Barnabas does the Cyprus. Paul does the Turkey part. Will on every trip. Second trip goes that way, makes his way to the end of Turkey, but then at that point makes his way into Europe. But he says, stops in Ephesus and says, hey, I'm coming back. Don't worry, I'll spend more time there. Third trip, he makes his way to Ephesus, spends three years there. It tells us all of Asia heard the word of God because of this. He really sets up shop there. Then goes around again, Macedonia into Greece, like he did before, and then makes his way back over now north of Ephesus to uh, that area of Troas, and then makes his way down and does it, and then he meets the Ephesian elders, but not in Ephesus, south in a place called Miletus, and has this beautiful speech, and he goes, I just want you to know, when I leave, there are wolves waiting for you. And they're going to come to try to destroy this flock. I know that. But you know what I tell you. And you know what the truth is. Do not bend. And shepherd this flock the way you're supposed to. Because he's talking to the elders. And I can't imagine what it would be like to leave a church knowing. Well, I do in some ways. To know that there are people who are poised to try to really try to hurt it. But knowing that you leave it in the hands of people that you go, I know who you are and I know you're a shepherd and I know you know how to protect this flock. When Paul heads back to Jerusalem, he's arrested for something that he didn't even do. And ultimately, he tries to beat him to death, but he's a political prisoner for two years in Israel. He's brought to, to Caesarea. Remember where Cornelius was saved? And I wonder if, I mean, I ever wonder, like, does Cornelius play into that all? Is he now watching him at this point? But ultimately, as he's there, he's there because they were gonna, there were 40 guys who wouldn't eat or drink and then maybe just eat, or then maybe not just eat pork or shellfish. And so they kill Paul, and then, but ultimately, so they move him out of there so he can't be part of that plot. And then Paul ultimately appeals to Caesar, because nobody knows why in the world this guy's in prison, because there's no legitimate charge against him. But to appeal to Caesar is the right of every Roman citizen, so they have to send him to Rome. So now he's got to get in all these ships, and he's this really rough road, you know, all the way to, to Rome. And then ultimately, Paul is then in, held in Rome. He has a meeting with the Jews there, and he's like, I want you guys to know I didn't do anything wrong. And they're like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never really heard of you. And Paul, you could be probably like, oh, never mind. <laughs> 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 and then what we read, and don't miss this, 
because Paul is now in prison. He thinks, well, that seems like a weird thing. This guy's like this great evangelist. But when Paul is in prison, there's a house arrest. He can have people visit him, come and go as he wants. Paul, because of that, will write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We call those the prison letters. And we'll see that when we get to them. He'll say things like, I'm in prison. My, your fellow prisoner says, I. You know, you know I'm in these chains. See, God knew that he needed some Bible written, and he had to keep, he had to imprison Paul to get it done. <laughs> yeah, I know where you're going with that. Be careful. <laughs> but the best part about the, the book of Acts is that it doesn't seem to have an end to it. There's no finality. It ends with this. That Paul spent two years in house arrest receiving and sending people that were visitors. No one stopping them. That's how it ends. You know, like, well, it doesn't seem like the book is done. And I would say, I don't think it is. I think I'm still writing the book because we know that according to the book of Revelation, the books are open to the deeds of those people. What are deeds? They're practices. They're the things that we get to do. You would ever wonder if God were writing the book of Acts today as he is. Imagine what he would say about you. Would he say anything of us? You know? You'd say, well, what if we're just in a room praying? Well, God recorded that in Acts 1, and look what happened. But the book ends with this idea that, wow, it doesn't sound like this thing is done yet. And then I'm thinking, wow, I get to be part of this now. You get to be a part of this book. Hey, you know, so what was it? A rough road from California, you know, we were ready, we were going to go, and God blew up a, you know, an Icelandic you know, volcano, so we had to spend a week at a Bible college to get ourselves ready, and then we had it here. But imagine, then we had it here, we preached the gospel to a bunch of people, and you guys showed up somewhere and all of that. And then as you guys showed up and all of that, a lot of other people showed up, and then crazy things started to happen. Did that sound like the Book of Acts? It sounded a lot like the Book of Acts. And there was treachery and betrayal and gossips and horrible things and people going mental and this and that and spiritual warfare of all kinds of things. And it just sounds like this. And then in the end of it all, somewhere it is, the dust cleared and we're like, now what do we do? Let's pray and let's keep moving forward. Because that's what Paul did. I mean, none of us has been beaten, thrown in prison, thrown in a big pile of poo somewhere in the dark and then said, well, what do I do? I mean, we haven't gotten there. Lord, I'm not, I'm not volunteering. <laughs> There's, I think there's no yet in that. Uh, and it's like, so somewhere, the, the point is, notice it wasn't the intentions of the apostles. It wasn't the doctrines of the apostles. It was the acts. It's what they did. Imagine what that will look like. What if this week we live like the book of Acts? And I'm not saying, well, let's speak in tongues. I'm saying, let's do what he said. God pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us. And if you're going to pour your Holy Spirit upon us, what should we expect to become? Witnesses in our Jerusalem. Do you know where our Jerusalem is? London. Or, might I say it this way, it's essentially, perhaps, or Croydon, you know, Camden, or Greenwich. And then it's our borough. Then it could be whatever that thing is beyond that a little bit. And then it's the end of the world. What's really funny is, we send people out, and I remember joking about it because we were at that point in California in a little town called Morro Bay. We sent them to Jerusalem, and he said, you know what's really funny? It's, for me, my Jerusalem is, okay, so it's Jerusalem. <laughs> and today he goes, but you know what's weird? Is my end of the world is Morro Bay. Your Jerusalem is Morro Bay. Your end of the world is Jerusalem. Because what the cool thing is that we do what God's called us to. As you go, preach and teach, it happens. So this is what I want to do to conclude this. 
So obviously, there's so much more we can develop, and look at how much we got out of it, you know, as an overview. And tonight, you'll probably go into convulsions over it. Gee, you have it in front of you to compare it to as we start to look at the books. But I remind you, you read through it too, and that helps. But what if we pray tonight, God, pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us? Not because what we want is to look awesome. We're trying to compete over who's most spiritually powerful. That sounds so nonsensical compared to this book. But pour your Holy Spirit upon us so that we get over ourselves and be the witnesses available for you calling us to the stand when you want. The calling to the stand might be when you're being when you're at the till. I got the privilege of doing that today at Waitrose. Or eating a shallow sandwich. Or or maybe the person that starts crying when they sit next to you. Or somebody that comes in that's a little bit off left of center at the guitar shop, which would be pretty much every person who walks in. Because <laughs> if they're extremely left of center, they're more than likely working there. Um, <laughs> or whatever it is. The point is, what if you're, again, there's no failure in saying, I'm available and me. You're like, well, I don't really want to live in God. Pour your Holy Spirit upon me right now because I need to be bold. I would genuinely believe what we are doing is asking something that is at the pulse of the heart of Christ. One last pray. Let me think. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for my brothers and sisters and for the privilege of being able to be here today eat burgers and jerk chicken and to celebrate you and to go through this book. Lord, I know there's so much and obviously these things it's like delivering the ocean in a teaspoon. But we want that teaspoon to be full of your wonder and majesty and you know, whales and dolphins and kelp and, and giant ships all in a teaspoon. And Lord, here we are seeking to take that little teaspoon, Lord, out of it as we look for just briefly at it for that moment. But Lord, we do get this. There were ordinary people who would have been considered in, in many ways under ordinary. Who you poured your Holy Spirit upon and they became bold. And everything that happened to them was for that boldness. Be that that they spoke in a language they didn't understand. Or that people could walk that couldn't walk before, or could see that couldn't see before. And we recognize there is opposition for these things. Divisions and compromise and persecutions and, and litigations that in many ways seek to curtail in the very thing that you want to accomplish, but your gospel has never changed. And so, Lord, let it be unchanged from our mouths. We recognize the biggest resistance, Lord, to what you want to do to us is often ourselves. So, Lord, I pray you would pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would get over ourselves to be the people you call us. We need you, Lord, and we commit this to you because we need you. And we know that is what you desire. Lord, I pray that we would give you writer's cramp because of the things that you do know through us. 
and you record those things in your book of life. And the deeds that you've done to us, and we just want to glory in you. And we pray for the salvation of our Jerusalem. That you would fill the streets with your name by those who love you and worship you. And make this fellowship one, Lord, where we are healthy and we are doctrined and in fellowship and breaking the bread and prayers like you intend. And that it would be public and private from house to house and corporate meetings. That you would add, Lord, not just to those who are joining the church, but those who are being saved. And turn those faith into disciples and turn those disciples into apostles. People who would go out and as they go, they would preach and they would teach. Even as you are today. Lord, we recognize it wasn't like Paul went on mission trips in his own mind. It was his life for him. And his life was on a boat and on a camel or on a whatever, but from one place to the other. And the issue wasn't even where he was going to be, because no matter where he was going to be, he was going to preach your gospel. That became evident. And if he couldn't go there at that moment, then he couldn't preach the gospel there at that moment. But there would be another time he'd go there to be more, to be more fruitful. Lord, I just pray that you would give that expectation in our hearts, Lord. We don't know. I mean, they didn't know it would be ten days later, and they didn't know when you poured your Holy Spirit that it would be like a sound of a rushing wind or tongues of fire. And that that from that, 3,000 people would get saved in that day, and on that day, it's like everything changed from that point on. Everything would involve that many more people. But it started with a bunch of people praying in a room, and here we are praying in a room. And we're asking for you to pour your Holy Spirit upon us. May you pour your Holy Spirit upon us. Make us the witnesses you call us to be evident at your disposal for the jury of men's hearts to be swayed to say yes to you. And so we give ourselves to you when we ask that now. Jesus,